world's not as simple as it used to be. It's not enough to be a good guy anymore. We have to be the best. The time has come. All will be accounted for. Or we will hunt them. Stand up. It's time to be the heroes we were always meant to be. have 1400 downloads hmm. over 54 episodes which averages around to an to a rough uh 26 downloads per episode wow huh. which is quite frankly more than i expected <laughs> that, is a, that is a crowded coffee shop so what do you know <laughs> social distancing get out of the coffee shop <laughs> if you're all listening to this right now Leave. Get out of the coffee shop. <laughs> yeah. Get out. Get out. Leave the latte uh, and go. <laughs> Actually, no. Can you bring me a green tea mocha latte? There's no time. I can't I, touch okay, you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> wait. Wait. Are you still there? No. So I'm under the. I'm under, gone. Let's rob the register. Yeah. <laughs> I'm already behind the counter. John, I need you to make me a green tea mocha latte. You right know there. I can't do that. Okay. I'm sorry. You gotta go through the drive-through. This is. Come on, man. All right, I'll just get an Americano at a... You can take a muffin. You can just take a muffin as you go. <laughs> okay, I'm not okay. going to tell anyone. Nobody sneezed on those. Okay, but do you mind Do you mind if I heat up my croissant? Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Okay, that's, thank you. I mean, you. it'd be okay. cruelty to not have a warm croissant. <sighs> All right, thanks. We're not, we're not, we're not descended to barbarism yet. Okay, but just, I appreciate just, it. Just like press the buttons really quiet. <sighs> Guys, we should start a comedy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I never did improv with you guys, but like, oh, I was in that coffee shop. Oh, that's right. You, that's right. You, you were a part of that. That's no. I had to the whole, the whole time we were just uh, dicking around right there. I had to go. Remember to say yes. That's how you do it. You say yes. The the, the funny the funny thing is, uh, I think I like we've done this podcast together for so long. I think I have backfilled memories with you in them to substitute yes. in people who I don't remember. <laughs> So the fact that ones. you so the fact that you said that you didn't do improv with us, I was like, no, you did. <laughs> no, I remember quite did. clearly. <laughs> you did. <laughs> no, you, I know. No, I have a buddy from college. We met first freshman semester, like the first semester of college, that hung out with us so much, like me and all my high school friends. That like we're just like, yeah, we're you know an hour in Photoshop, and you were. You, I mean, you went to our winter formal. Like, we're, what's her name? <laughs> didn't have a date. That was just you. So whenever we talk about Park City, he's like, "Yeah, I, I was there too." He's from Idaho, but he's like, "No, I was. Yeah, I remember Park City." <laughs> nice. So, do we want to talk about the Superhuman Registration Podcast now? Do we want to talk about the comics that we read and that we rank and that we review? Tough. We're going to talk about X Men. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the Superhuman Registration Podcast. I am Steven, and I've got Aldo, and I've got John with me on the line. And actually, we are here. actually, hold on. John's my human name. I'm thinking of taking another. Are you a jellical cat? What? Th- what's the deal with that? Did you read the comics we read I, tonight? I did, but you are not a mutant, and this is cultural you appropriation. Hey, you don't know. Moira McTaggart was not a mutant for 60 years. <laughs> Yeah, what a revelation that was. Yeah. No, she was actually a mutant all along, and has been a mutant actually for several hundreds, potentially thousands of years at this point. Listen, don't don't act like you knew this. Uh, yeah, don't. Yeah. Don't don't act like you Monday knew this. Monday morning quarterbacking BS. <laughs> oh goodness. So, um, House of X and Powers of X. This was this was 
quite the read, wasn't it? Yeah. So uh, before we say anything about this book, uh, whether it be a summary <laughs> or judgment of it, <laughs> uh, we said last week, as or not last week, last episode, when we read Secret Wars from 1984, that that book felt like reading homework. Uh, this was actual reading homework. <laughs> this was all. This was I've not had my head hurts. I've not had such a hard time reading and having to take notes since I left college. <laughs> yeah, this book was nuts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you want to elaborate further, Stephen? Just say game changer, <laughs> and we'll we'll end early. <laughs> um, before before I really get into that, though, I think I want to ask the question: um, one story or two? What do we what do we think? Uh, two series that are one. I believe whatever marketing material is put in front of me. That's true. The marketing material, like the back of every book has a suggested reading order. I think, and, and I read it in that reading order, and um, part of me was like, boy, I hope, because I had forgotten exactly if we were doing both or just House of X, and I was like, boy, I hope I don't get the two things mixed up. I would say it is um, the record and its B-side, and you really get the full experience if you listen to them both. Oh, you... Like, you do, I think, need to to get the full experience. Yeah. Um, I read it through using the suggested reading order. John Same. read it through using the suggested reading order. All of the two. Okay. Um, I was going to try to do a second read-through uh, just in, like, read Houses of X, read Powers of X. That did not happen. <laughs> I, I don't did. blame you. Yeah. This was a lot of reading. Um not as much as I thought it was going to be. I read the first issue of House of X, and it's like forty pages long. Oh, the yeah, the first two, the the yeah. two number ones, yeah, are yeah. A, they're both a doozy. And it's like all like it's mostly text. Mm-hmm. It's so insane. It's not even yeah. It's like not even just like you know Chris Claremont. Oh, there are pictures, and then there are enormous word balloons. It's like you flip over a page, and all of a sudden, it's like a history lesson. For Here are the schematics of how plants work. Do you want to know who all the Omega level mutants are? Well, here they are. Is it important? Well, you're gonna find out. I liked that though. Here's the thing: I liked it, but I don't know how much of it was actually important. And I also skipped a lot of it. Actually, a, a, a fair bit amount of it was. There's a lot of stuff in there that doesn't seem important. Okay, so it's not important in the sense that like it helps make a grander reveal of the reveals that happen. But there are details in there that like later down the line you're like oh oh that's why this is the thing it is and why hmm. yeah so should i attempt the summary uh good luck yeah so yeah. this is not an easy book to summarize in part honestly because it's not really about what happens in the book as much as the things that it sets up so there are two story arcs uh, main story arcs, and they kind of go off in a bunch of different directions. House of X deals primarily with the foundation of a mutant society, a mutant nation-state on the living island of Krakoa, which I don't think we've read uh, Giant Size X-Men number one yet, but that's kind of like a big deal, a big lynch point in in X-Men lore. That was the launch of the all new, all different X-Men with uh, Wolverine and Storm and Colossus. Uh, the point where the X-Men went from like C tier 
uh, Lee and Kirby creations to one of the best properties that Marvel had going. Yep. Yeah. So that's mostly what House of X deals with. House of X also follows a team of a mutant strike force led by Cyclops who are trying to take out a uh, super sentinel creating machine called the Mother Mold that is supposed to be the moment where the uh, mutant hunting machine from the future Nimrod takes sentience and... Once Nimrod is online, the mutant population is completely doomed. So that's really the main thrust of House of X. Now, how do we know that when Nimrod comes online, the mutant population is doomed? Well, that is the result of uh, some of the events from Powers of X. Powers of X follows mainly Moira McTaggart, who we joked about this a little bit earlier in the recording. Moira McTaggart has historically in the history of X-Men been a human ally. Uh, Powers of X reveals that Moira is actually a mutant, and her mutant power is reincarnation. She, Whenever she dies, she's reborn in an alternate timeline, but she retains all of the memories of her previous lives. Her powers is the main mechanic of Dark Souls. <laughs> there you go. See, I was going to make a Dune analogy, but yeah, that's better. Her mutant power is safe scumming. <laughs> Oh, goodness. So, anyway, from multiple lifetimes that she's lived, Moira McTaggart has learned that Charles Xavier's dream always fails, and humanity always wipes the mutants out. It may take a hundred years, it may take a thousand years, but the mutants always lose. So, in her tenth life, McTaggart brings... Charles Xavier and Magneto together and, and basically tries to get them to work together to build a solid future for uh, mutant kind. And because this is like the first time that we are seeing these events, we don't know how things are going to end. And that's really the whole setup of like both of these books. The point is mutants are coming together as one race to like hold together, to band together to support each other, the hero-villain line breakdown is pretty much completely dissolved. The the mutant nation that is formed on Krakoa is made up, like, it's, it's ruled by a group of 14 individuals? Let's see, there are the four yeah. seasons, and they each have three, and then there is the Krakoa, Krakoa and, and Cypher yeah. are the other two chairs. So it's 14. Um, and it's a mix of heroes and villains. Professor X, Magneto, Jean Grey, Apocalypse, Nightcrawler, Mr. Sinister, uh, White Queen, Storm. Like, yeah, it's, it's this most bizarre mix of mutants. And they put together rules and laws governing mutant culture. And that's kind of where things end. But there's a lot of stuff that we're glossing over uh, just... Because there's so much in this that I can't really... Like, it's, it doesn't do it justice to just summarize. This is really something that I think has to be read. At the very least, you need to sit down and spend a couple hours reading the Wikipedia pages if you want to get the full extent of what is covered here. A couple of things that happen as a result of this. Um, the mutants... The mutant nation agrees to uh, trade these flowers that grow on Krakoa, they turn them into drugs, and they trade these drugs with the human world, and that's kind of how they ensure their sovereignty. 
and the drugs do things like they extend the human lifespan and they treat all known diseases and there's a third drug that I don't remember what it does off the top of my head. There's a pill uh, it extends the human life for five years. The other one, um, a universal antibiotic, and then the other one uh, produces a drug that cures d- uh, diseases of the mind in humans. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Alzheimer's or Lou Gehrig's, I would guess. Like, uh, doesn't that originate in the mind? I don't know. They don't specify. Uh, it's, it's that sounds more like a neurological thing as opposed to a psychological thing. But I mean, it's it's all science fiction bullcrap. So who really cares? Well, that um, gives them, yeah, the uh, gateways in their different locations because the the the, the whole nation of all the mutants is like split up between Krakoa and then other kind of little safe spots or little little embassy i don't even know what they call them yeah little so like satellite branches of yeah. Krakoa. so it's um these uh, the habitat so they have a flower produces a habitat a habitat is a self-sustaining environment a biome that is part of the interconnected consciousness of Krakoa, and then no place um non-naturally occurring flower produces a habitat that exists outside the collective consciousness of Krakoa. A place within the island ecosystem that Krakoa doesn't know exists, a Krakoan tumor. Because someone someone's hiding out in there. Yeah. Um, so that's someone being Moira. Mm-hmm. Um, other things that happen in this series, the weirdest thing, I think, the single weirdest thing, is uh, the team of X-Men that goes to destroy the Mother Mold. They all die. And that includes Wolverine, Cyclops, Jean Grey, Nightcrawler, Mystique, Penance, I think... Archangel was on the the ship as well, and he dies. They all die. But then it turns out that they've been doing a whole lot of research into uh, what these what mutant powers can do, and they bring together a team of five mutants, including Proteus, Hope Summers, Elixir. Uh, I don't remember Eva Bell. She's one of the new X Men. I don't remember Tempest. what her codename is. What was it? Tempest. Tempest. Yeah. Tempest. And we joked about this guy not that long ago. Gold balls. I Hello. love him. <laughs> you put their five powers together and you have the ability to bring anybody back to life. It technically isn't bringing them back to life. It is creating an exact clone of the it's dead the sixth mutant. day if you saw that crappy Schwarzenegger movie. <laughs> it's, uh, it's bootlegged Dark Souls. <laughs> yeah, you get like you get your most recent most recent consciousness dump put into a new body. Yeah, you go. There's the safe point. Yeah, and <laughs> and uh, yeah, it uh, that's another use for Cerebro that he had it modified to have a lot of storage capacity. Yeah, um, and then the mutant nation they set up their three laws. There are three primary laws for the mutant nation. You can't uh, hurt the humans. You have to yeah, do what the humans law, tell you. <laughs> yeah, actually, I actually really like this, though. I, I'm, like, I'm, making a, I'm making an Asimov joke. <laughs> you oh, just... <laughs> Thanks, Steven. Making an <laughs> Asimov of yourself. <laughs> it's a good joke, although. It's a good joke. I mean, you don't have to say that. It's fine. <laughs> that was, that was a good joke. You know, you can like... keep going. Just, he doesn't want to feel bad laughing at it later. <laughs> so they make a law not to hurt humans because humans are weaker than mutants and therefore that is immoral why would you um, kill a mockingbird <laughs> I'm sorry I'm done with my <laughs> literary references oh I hope not uh, the second law is to 
respect the land of Krakoa. Krakoa is now basically a holy land to the mutants. And the third law, this is actually probably one of the more enjoyable moments. Uh, Mystique is on the council that's making the human laws, and she starts poking at Nightcrawler, who is, you know, a devout religious man. He's a Catholic. And Mystique's like, what does God want the mutants to do? And Nightcrawler, just like, cool as anything, says, we need to make more mutants. And so the third law is, you know, procreate, go forth and replenish, or be, fu- be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. It's, it's pretty great. And God yeah. said, party gone, kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that's the first official act of the Mutant Council. The second official act of the Mutant Council is to uh, condemn Sabretooth to life imprisonment within the bowels of Krakoa. Because they don't have the death penalty, because if you kill a mutant, because there are so few of them, you have to bring them back to life. And so they're like, we'll just bury him in the ground in the tarpon chains. That's not quite what happens. <laughs> oh my gosh, dude. <laughs> Why would you, you bring your, up Black Goliath? Your, every time, man. Oh, it, it's almost a muscle memory at this point. I started saying buried in the ground, and it just, the rest of it spilled out. Um, anyway, I think that's going to do it for summary, because now I'm starting to talk about specific moments. So why don't we actually open up the I, conversation? I have a couple questions uh, before we move on. I guess, set up questions. Okay. Uh, I, <laughs> I gleamed this off, I think it was a wiki or something. Huh. Uh, but Xavier is in the body of Phantom X. Yeah, I had to read up on that. I think the the last major appearance of Professor X prior to this was when he died. Well, no, there, I mean, obviously his resurrection happened. But, like, the last major Professor X incident prior to this and prior to his resurrection was his death during AVX, or Avengers vs. X-Men. I think those are technically different stories. Um, and so, yeah, he comes back... And Phantom X volunteers his body to say, like, nobody remembers me anyway, but if I uh, give up my body to be the host of the mind of Charles Xavier, then everything will be fine, which, okay, whatever. That's silly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Second question uh, is, (laughs) okay, so I know know half the answer to this, because this is not the Jean Grey from the all-new X-Men who was time-displaced. This is the original Jean Grey, somehow, and she's gone back to using Marvel Girl. What happened there? Why is Jean Grey back alive? Okay. That I don't know. I I knew she was back. They made a big event out of it not that long ago. I thought that was, I thought it was the time displaced one. No, they gone back. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to check it out. Yeah, they all went back. I know they gone, yeah, I know they went back and I know like Young Cable helped them go back. Also, Young Cable is a thing now. Um, yeah, it's a it's a much it's much better than Young Sheldon. Uh, <laughs> oh, why would you bring up just? Oh. That's that's like the second episode in a row that's had Big Bang Theory references, and th- they're not uncommon on our podcast. It's it's depressing, actually. Which yeah, which is a little ironic, seeing as we all kind of don't like not, Big Bang Theory. Nope. But yeah, so like obviously, there's a lot of 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 I don't know book work, a lot of. This, this, this almost feels, uh, for lack of a better word, biblical. This feels like you're reading, like part of like an X Men Bible. Yeah, and and it very much is like that is the point. This is the setup. This is a, a regenesis for the X Men. 
setting up the new rules. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the second or third or fifth one. Um, oh, yeah, there was an actual event called like Regenesis. Uh, I believe there was. Yes. Anyways, this is a re-regenesis for the X-Men, in which uh, the rules are kind of getting redefined. The layout of the land and like the law of the land is being established. Like, There's a lot. Of th- That's kind of the impressive thing about this book is how much of it remains entertaining while doing just a gajillion miles of groundwork being laid. Mm-hmm. It, it does a lot. It really yeah, does. There, there is so much in this book that I am actually almost tempted to say this book doesn't have a plot. But it does, though. <laughs> but it does, but it doesn't, but it does. Ex- exactly. Exactly. You can make a, you can make a pretty strong argument either way. There's plots. There are several plot threads that are running. Cause so so I don't I don't know. Did you did you I tuned out a little bit, I'm sorry. <laughs> did you talk about how while we're watching or while we're experiencing Moira's timelines as they're like establishing all this stuff? Did you mention that like we're also getting plot threads that are like thousands of years in the future? I didn't. I figured we'd get into that more in this section. So okay. I kind of because there are plot threads that are taking place thousands of years in the future, and those are those got a little weird. And those were the ones I I can't quite tell if they're important in the setup for the current story or they're important for setup for future. Here's future here's stories. two things. Um, it was the Phoenix again. Of course, of course. Back. Yeah, like I was trying to like pick it up from. Oh, it's this whole weird thing, X Men Red, I guess. But what X Men being weird? <laughs> Phoenix brings her back. She convinces the Phoenix to like leave her alone for good, and it does. Short answer. Oh, uh, uh, sure, it does. Other thing, the the I liked the future scenes because it kind of played out the like the plight of the X Men. Like no matter what they do, they're gonna lose. No matter what they do, somehow Nimrod, like the you know the uh, super intelligent AI Sentinel. Is gonna you know come for them? It's gonna finish them off somehow. Um, in many different versions, many different lives of Moira Taggart, different you know we we have um, Rachel Summers came back from an alternate version, or maybe that's been retconned now. I oh sure, um, but there there's always that problem of in the future, mutants are gonna be eliminated by AI, and it mm-hmm. turns out in this one not just AI but humans who've um, given themselves over to machines or to collective consciousnesses um, from other planets. And um, I never know how to pronounce phalanx. Phalanx? Phalanx. Phalanx, yeah. Yeah. I can't uh, make the connection between phalanx and reading the word on the page. Every time my brain's like... (laughs) Um, Phalanx, um, that's one future where it eventually um, comes to take them. I think going forward, it'll be really interesting to see, you know, Moira McTaggart hiding from Destiny. If Destiny's still alive somewhere. Well, they said they were going to bring her back. Yeah. Right. That was the condition for getting uh, Mystique involved. They were going to bring her back the same way I keep saying I'm going to do the dishes. (laughs) (laughs) They intend to, but they are very specifically not promising when. Which, because they can't, like, they were really, like, strict about, like, look, we can't have a precog, which I'm surprised there aren't any other mutants with that, with that 
Like, they don't have that ability. Yet. Like, that does leave some interesting wiggle room for maybe another mutant gets born. Or, you know, they eventually do bring back Destiny. Um, and, and like, you know, Sabretooth is going to get out and be really pissed. And, like, that's a whole thing. You know, that, there's a lot of setup. And I think that that's maybe to the detriment of this story is that, like, it's really just, like, putting the pieces in place for a new status quo of the, like the Marvel, the uh, mutants position in the Marvel universe. It's really interesting and right. good now that they're back. Everyone's in the same movie studio. So maybe they won't like, <laughs> pull punches with X-Men anymore. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, one of the things I was a little disappointed. was not in this book. Uh, was the, was the hint. It's a little bit in the, in here. It's a little bit in here, but like the, the big hint that, uh, Gene Scott, Wolverine and Emma are in a polyamorous relationship. Yeah. Yep. That's that's an X-Men number one. But <laughs> there are hints to it. Yeah, they're they're very slight hints. But I like them. there's yeah, that that's potentially a thing. Which I'm not sure that I like that, but mainly because I don't buy the Wolverine Cyclops Jean Grey love triangle. I've never bought it. Okay, but Steven, they have to make more mutants and you gotta break a few rules. that's like fine whatever um it's just it's that specific character uh bit like those three in the love triangle like the cyclops gene emma love triangle i think is great yeah yes because that i think does really interesting things for all three characters but mainly like scott and emma who emma i don't actually care about that much but having her actually form a real human attachment with somebody else does a lot to make the character more palatable and having Cyclops, you know, break some rules does great things for his character too. Like the more he breaks rules, the more interesting he becomes. Yeah, absolutely. Here, I have a question for you guys about X-Men in general. Uh, Are there any good examples of the next generation, like children of X-Men, children of of mutants, like things going okay? Children of the Atom? No. (laughs) I'm just thinking about like Cable. He had a rough go of it. Hope, really rough time. Legion. Um, Rachel? Rachel, maybe. No, she was, I mean, she was a, she was a hound. So that's not great. Yeah, I don't know, man. That's true. But the hound part for her is actually more of her backstory. Like, yeah. Like, she comes back to the the present. Well, I guess I lose track of Rachel after a certain point, so I don't know. But you're talking about children of X-Men, Like, right? children children of X-Men, children, like, you know, multi-generational mutants. Is, is there uh, ever anyone who's like, I was an X-Man, and my kid's going to be an X-Man, and it's going to be, it's a good thing. It's not like Cable, where it's like, hey, hey guys, the future's real screwed up. You know. Um, uh... <laughs> It happens to Beak in the Grant Morrison run. Absolutely, I reject that. But yeah, like that also gets retconned a bit, or not really retconned. So the Grant Morrison run has this bit where we see the X-Men in the future, and one of these future X-Men is the descendant of Beak, who is a recurring character from the Morrison run. Beak's mutant power is that he has a lot of the physical characteristics of a bird, but he can't actually fly, so he's really just very, very ugly. Yeah. That that and also he has hollow bones, so he's ugly and a huge liability in a fight. Yeah. But he's got this really great character arc through the uh, Morrison run, and uh, in the Morrison run, one of his descendants winds up being this great X Man. Hmm. And so, but then during Exiles, Beak winds up joining Exiles, and 
he decides to stay in the uh, House of M world when they do, like... No, he, he winds up staying in the main world when Wanda hits the world with the No More Mutants thing and he turns into a human and that's the end of Beak, which I am mad about. That was a cop-out. I liked Beak. But regardless, like, that actually brings up kind of an interesting thing. Um, the Grant Morrison run of X-Men is basically just X-Men's greatest hits over and over and over again, which it seems like a lot of great X-Men runs are. And when I say X-Men's greatest hits, I mean specifically Claremont's X-Men. Huh. What did Claremont do with the X-Men? Claremont has, like, the, the Phoenix Claremont has the future that is completely dire and dismal and the mutants are going to lose and so there's time travel to try to, to bring the mutants back uh, or to, to help ward off this, this uh, like destined apocalypse. And I feel like Hickman's hitting a lot of these same beats but he's approaching them from such a different angle that it works and even though there are like parallels and repetitions of past plot points, they don't feel like they are repetitions at all. They feel brand new. Uh -huh. um, and it's, I, I think it's like Hickman is, I, I get the impression that he's more interested in writing quote unquote science fiction than he is in writing comics. And so he's approaching this yeah. as a sci-fi writer. I, I think the other thing about Hickman and probably why he's kind of helped re-architect the Marvel Universe in like the last decade or so is I think he's he's also a real like big picture guy. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, and it it's absolutely a strength to him and I and I I appreciate it um because he part of like his skill especially in this and Secret Wars is how much double duty his scripts are 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 doing, right? Not only are they setting up the structure and lay of the land for the future, but how good the story that he's telling at the same time is like, it never really feels like, like you're switching from one thing to the other. It feels like you're doing both this one. Not as much. Cause you have actual pages of these are the rules, but, um, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. But I think like going off of that, um, a lot of superhero comics like to put these fantastical elements into the real world but they want them to be quote-unquote relatable. And so they keep as much as possible the fictional world of the superhero comic the same as the real world. Hickman doesn't seem particularly interested in doing that, especially here. He's like, okay, if you have mutants that get together and, like, have these abilities, what would happen? And he, he turns them into a military power. And he shows how the mutants are able to barter for their existence with these drugs that will fundamentally reshape the way human society works. And then he takes those questions and he actually like explores them a little bit further. I think the best sci-fi stuff is obviously the future storylines that we explore, which are two of Moira McTaggart's previous nine lives. I think mm -hmm. they're the, the sixth and the ninth, yeah. specifically. And what he does is he illustrates that mutation is, you know, long-term genetic adaptation to changes in the environment. That's, that's really what mutation is. But in the future of the Marvel Universe, humans develop technology to perfectly control their environments 
and then they use that technology on themselves as well. It, this gets into the very real topic of transhumanism, which is not something I am at all qualified to talk about, but a combination of those two factors results in mutants winding up being evolutionary dead ends rather than the next evolutionary step. Because what's the point of a mutation to adapt to an environment that the humanity can already perfectly control? Like, those are really interesting ideas that don't really go anywhere here. They more set up, this is the barrier that, hu that mutants have to face. And this is where we start to get into, like, some of the stuff. I have problems with this book. Uh, that I don't know if I want to get into them quite yet, but I mean this is as good a segue as any. Oh yeah. gosh! So this is this is the frustration that I have with this book. The number one frustration that I have with this book: mutants have historically been used within Marvel comics as this sort of metaphor for uh, repressed minority groups. The other. The other, uh, but not just not the other. Like uh, the. Because the other implies the person who is not you. A lot of people who belong to those minority groups identify with mutants. Okay, that's fair, yeah. So they're not the other. Like, if you are a, you know, young gay man growing up in a conservative religious society, you might identify with the mutants because the mutants are, you know, cool and they're powerful and they're special and they're, they're not that dissimilar from you, but people hate them just because of who they are. And that has been a very useful tool for storytellers who tell stories with the mutants. And it's part of, it's the only thing that makes Charles Xavier like an aspirational figure. Because as we've learned from reading, he's actually bad. But his goal is to have mutants and humans live together in harmony. The thesis of House and Powers of X is that Charles Xavier is fundamentally wrong, humans and mutants cannot coexist, and so the mutants need to withdraw from the human world and create their own nation-state. Krakoa for mutants only. And that whole thing has me questioning, like, is the unintended message of House and Powers of X that the white supremacists who want Trump to build that wall, are they right? I, so here's, here's the thing. And no. I don't, and I don't know how strong of an argument this is with your current mindset of how you feel about this book. <laughs> I think part of the shift here isn't necessarily uh, like a like a like a social justice message that they that they're right and that in order for for everybody else who has been othered by society that you have to go build your own nation. I think part of this decision also comes into play in how much more diversity has come into the Marvel universe in the recent years mm -hmm. from a black Spider-Man uh, to a Pakistani uh, Middle Eastern Miss Marvel uh, black iron, iron heart girl, like all these kind of more diverse characters that I think maybe the X-Men just aren't as needed for that allegory as they were 20 years ago. I would agree with that. And I would add to it that they were never actually that good a representation anyway. They were just kind of the best we had. But at the same time, it is like, this is still part of the X-Men's history. I think I don't think this was an intentional, like, Jonathan Hickman wearing a MAGA hat. <laughs> writing House and Powers of X. I think more likely this is just, like, an unattended side effect. Or an unintended consequence of Hickman taking the X-Men in a very much 
more science fiction oriented direction where it's like yeah i there's a, there's a few jokes i want to make and i really don't want to make them because i'm not qualified to make but i'm gonna go out on a limb and i'm pretty sure jonathan hickman is not saying hey the gays need to create uh, a gay country and they rule their own people now and they set up their own gay laws it'd be really nice though I mean, Wait, it what? would be. <laughs> I mean, not. <laughs> I mean, no. We just need to be accepting, and you know, like, throw a few of them in office. Let them, let them make some rules. Yeah. Uh, you know, let them have a say in in the society that governs them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, not I think. Yeah. I think it is. Uh, I think it is like an unfortunate side effect, and I think that kind of goes back to what we were saying: is that. Jonathan Hickman, I think, is a very excellent science fiction writer, but I don't think he is a political writer. So I think stuff like that for him might be a little easier to miss. I don't know if I agree with that. I, I don't know because I'm also not 100% sure because I have not read or am familiar with the entirety of the Jonathan Hickman canon. Let me, let me ask this question. Is this possibly... He's like, well, I'm going to write X-Men. X-Men has always been, you know, an allegory for, you, you know, people who are oppressed, whatever, whatever that is at the time. But I'm, I'm thinking like a science fiction writer, like what's the end goal? What's the point? What's, what would it, what would they, a group like this do if they had the resources of the X-Men? What's something we can play with? Ooh, Krakoa, we're going to bring it back. Instead of being like living under the X-Mansion, I'm so stupid, but the art was good. Um, <laughs> what if, what if that gives them the ability? And that's, this is something that's kind of been, you know, Genosha, they had, um, what was their nation state? Like it was, the, they had a whole Island just off of San Francisco for a while. Oh, you Utopia. Know, Utopia. Yeah. Thank you. That's they, right. This is like the third time yeah. that there's been a mutant nation state. Isn't well, it? And, and they make a joke about it too. Yeah. It's like, this isn't just, you know, I think, I think he's thinking like, how, how do we ch- shake things up? How do we make this interesting? How do I, you know, own this story? How do I uh, contribute to this in my yeah, own special yeah. way? And and I I think that there's a lot of good here, and it, it's interesting. I don't know how long it'll last in this because it never does. It's always you know you, the X Men are going to go back to, you know, being hated and feared by people, and and somehow it's going to blow up in their faces all of this. But in yeah. the meantime. Hey, I'm I'm interested. I think it was I think it was a, a good take, a, a different take, if not one that I would choose. I think I think I'm used to and prefer the mutants' role as you know representing those oppressed peoples and and uh, you know dealing with that as opposed to well now we have all the power because we're gonna all be united heroes and villains alike and have our own you know secret nation states and all the you know resurrection you know, as a possibility. I I will say that I do understand, like, your concern on that, Steven. I didn't pick up on that, uh, on it this time around, because I, like, barely finished reading the last two books today, like, on my lunch break. Um, <laughs> so I don't think I had enough time to really, like, uh, branch on it. But, like, talking about it, it I can I can definitely see how other people could also feel the same way where like maybe they felt like they they lost them. maybe x-men is the only thing you've read and that's a big appeal of why you like them is because uh they're overpowered underdogs right um but I, I like i definitely think that this is more unfortunate implication than anything else 
Um, but it's also been on my mind because I've been thinking a lot about unfortunate implications in the X-Men recently because of our conversations about Magneto last time and how, like, we, we made some comments last time about how, oh, it's unfortunate that Magneto gets compared to the Nazis because, you know, he was a Jew in the Holocaust. Uh, a, I don't think that had been established by this point, like, like by Secret Wars. And B, Magneto killed a lot of people and was a, like... Uh, you know, he's, he's a mutant supremacist. He is a terrorist. Uh, and so like having Magneto all of a sudden be centered as like this book present or posits that the, the mutant nation of Krakoa is a combination of Professor X's and Magneto's dreams, but it really kind of is just Magneto's dream. And apocalypses. Yeah. And apocalypses. Yeah. Which is why Apocalypse it's like is now we a have good to guy. Get, good guy. Quotes. Yeah, it's like we have to get uh, Xavier to bend on his, you know, his. Yeah, he's the one that has nature. to do the yeah. most bending. Yeah. yeah, and to the point where it almost feels like you know Magneto won. And I know that there's been a lot of great stories in the past, honestly, twenty or thirty years at this point about Magneto as a sympathetic villain with with understandable motivations. But there was still that time that Magneto completely sunk a uh, submarine uh, and, and killed every human being on board. Like, he does these horrible things, you know. And so Magneto's always been this kind of weird contradiction. And now I feel like House and Powers of X takes that contradiction and applies it across the entirety of mutant kind. And the, the, I, I'm talking about this like it's a bad thing. And part of me is bugged by it. But also... Part of me is intrigued by the fact that Jonathan Hickman likes telling stories and he, like, is willing to explore hypothetical spaces. Not just hypothetical in the terms of, like, science fiction and this weird sort of, like, fantastical biology, but also in terms of morality. Like, the, the idea that the mutants can just literally resurrect anybody who dies is weird and kind of creepy. But if that is a thing that is real, what's the morality of it? Hickman sets up a lot. And this is mostly, I think, in the text. Yeah. But Hickman sets up a lot of like moral questions about this, and he's willing to play in that space. And I think that makes House and Powers of X just incredibly interesting. Yeah, I, I, he, he does talk. I mean, there's there's two implications of that, right? Because you have the five who are ascended into something to be like almost uh, like prayed to. Yeah, which is a little it's a little uncomfortable actually oh, to legitimately um but there's also like this whole he also sets up rules too right where he's like uh i think i think he mentioned something like it can it can only be somebody who has like consented to being brought back uh um it can't be because of like old age or something like that like if they die naturally that's it um uh, what was one of the other rules? Like they can't break somebody back just because they think they're dead. They have to. They have to confirm, or they have to wait so long. Yeah, that like make, that Cerebro has not been able to like find them in like a month or something. Yeah, there's like very well semi-specific rules about that, and it's kind of interesting that he's doing a lot of this this groundwork. It's almost like you have a writer who maybe one of his biggest complaints uh, has been how uh, fast and loose the rules are played with. In comic books. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I feel like Jonathan Hickman uh, probably really enjoyed Death Note. 
<laughs> yeah, if he's seen it, it's it's a it's an anime that's all about knowing the rules and then manipulating the rules. But the rules are there and you can't break them. Yeah. Oh, Steven, we've all seen the anime. I don't know why you're explaining it to surely uh, everyone <clears throat> here on the podcast is uh that is um common common currency between us all. John, do you do you like Sherlock? Who? Sherlock? Yes, of course. Uh how how would you enjoy a story about a Sherlock uh who has to find another Sherlock who is using a magical notebook to kill people? That sounds amazing. Hey, you tricked me into an anime. Oh. <laughs> I'm on to you. <laughs> that is exactly what that is. <laughs> Death Note was the first anime that really got me hooked on anime as a concept, so I actually do highly recommend it. Oh, so it's the but... gateway drug. No, sir. They warned me about people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, come on. Just one won't hurt you. Uh-huh. It's on... Isn't it on Netflix? I don't know. It's, it's... It has been on Netflix. Um, regardless, we're not dealing with Death Note here. We're dealing with, with X-Men and their weird resurrection powers. Um, gosh, it's so weird. I think I think if you if they're really strict within the fl- the framework going forward, there can be interesting implications of that. Mm-hmm. It's it's really going to be interesting to see how everyone else, like Orcus, how they all come down on the X-Men mm-hmm. or mutants, period, because they're all, you know, they're all together now. Um, how they come down on them and uh, what's, I mean, there's going to be infighting. There's always infighting. They can't help it. But I mean, they haven't, I mean, the only like X-Men, like the only uh, mutant villain really that they've done anything with is Sabretooth. And I, I mean, that can't be the only bad guy that like becomes too bad for their society to yeah, accept, well, right? Like, well, I think, and I think they, you know, they set up a lot of interesting stuff um, that could pay off depending on, on how well, they they kind of take the stuff, uh. Yeah. You know, we mentioned we mentioned Sabretooth, and that's very much a thing. Um, but there's also this whole thing with having, uh, pretty much like half the major villains be part of the Quiet Council, and a lot of them probably ready to scheme their own schemes to get some power or do some other shenanigans in this new uh, regime. Because you have Mr. Sinister. You know, you know Sinister is up to something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know Mystique has her own stuff coming. Exodus has his own things running. And you know, like, you know Apocalypse is not going to be calm for you too know, long. Apocalypse is the one, weirdly enough, Apocalypse is the one that makes the most sense to me. Yeah. Like, like as far as who is going to buy into this idea of a mutant nation state, somehow Apocalypse works in that. In a way that sinister doesn't. Yeah. Oh, so <laughs> can we talk? Sorry, sorry. Can we talk about like actual content in the books for a moment and talk about how great and sinister not just is? Ideas, but actually, some of the characters. <laughs> but but actually, can we just talk about how how great sinister is? Because uh, Jonathan Hickman writes the best sinister. Because they go, they they walk up to sinister. It's it's Moira, <laughs> Charles, and Magneto. And they want to go talk to Mr. Sinister. And there's already some hilarious things that happen to begin with. But they're proposing that he keep these mutant samples and that he's going to store them. And he says something along the lines of like, I'm not interested in like mutant genetics. It hasn't worked out well. And then a different Sinister just shoots that Sinister in the head. And he it just gleefully yells, but I do. <laughs> I'm the one with the X gene. Yeehaw. <laughs> <laughs> that was the such clown. a Deadpool moment. It was like 
when did Sinister become Deadpool? You know? Right. Like, it really felt... It was great, though. It also, was... I don't even want to know how Deadpool factors into all of this. Uh, I, just, I just don't want to know. Because he's not really a mutant. But, but he is, is a mutant. He, he is, though. But he's, but he's not. Like, I but thought... But he is! No, he he was given the X gene, but like not born a mutant. Does it does that matter at this point? Like he's what? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Is he a resident or a citizen of Krakoa? <laughs> was he not born a mutant? No, I, I thought he was, and recently recently have learned otherwise. He is a human oh. mutate. He is not a mutant. So he's like Cap. He's like anyone else who got their powers not from birth, but. I, I will say though that uh I love I love how much uh Mr. Sinister loves uh Magneto's cape. I mentioned this when we read Secret Wars, because Sinister features in Secret Wars a little bit. Um Sinister works really well as an over-the-top, just incredibly evil camp. Like just the campiness of Sinister works surprisingly well and helps to differentiate him from Apocalypse and from a lot of other like X-Men villains who are all scheming on the genetic side of things, you know? Uh, Sinister, I've liked Sinister because I think he's got a bonkers design, but um, as a character in the comics, he hasn't really done much for me until I started reading Hickman's writing of him. Because he just turns him into... uh, And maybe Hickman isn't the first person to do this, but he's the first person I noticed. Like, campy Sinister is so much fun. Uh, It's great. (laughs) Yep. I just completely silenced you all with my ode to Campy Sinister. I'm, like, trying to read up on if, like, Deadpool is a mutant or not. Because now I thought, I thought it was. Well, Deadpool's not even in this book. He's not. Uh, you're correct. You know what book he was yet. in? Secret Wars. <laughs> Actually, talking about the setup, uh, gosh, back to ideas about the book. Um <laughs> One one of the things I am a little excited for is uh, I I always felt like the main X Men book should be like the core book, and sometimes it is. And but so, I, I mean, granted, I don't read X Men very often because it's complicated. And this book just cements that idea <laughs> that X Men is complicated. Oh my god, god we're X-Men, never going to win him over, Stephen. X Men could be its own like franchise separate of the Marvel like universe. Uh huh. And it and it has been. I mean, yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm saying I'm saying you could have an entire X-Men universe without uh Marvel. But uh one of the things I was reading is that Hickman, I think he's in charge of writing the the main X-Men book and just serves kind of as an overall architect. And the way he's explained it is the X-Men book is made to be really fluid and that's the book where you're going to see um characters like pop in or pop out and like that'll lead you to like read other books if you're interested in following those characters but the idea is that that whole team is meant to be fluid yeah no i think that that was the idea like you know you have the x-men book and then you get the limited series like that wolverine run we've read with um frank miller john or and uh chris claremont and then you come back to you know the regular x-men run and they've kind of done that where there's like the different x-men teams and uh I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. X, all, all I'm saying is uh, my big takeaway from this book is uh, one X-Men. Uh, no, one Hickman, excellent writer. Still one of my favorites. Uh, two, man, X-Men. 
X-Men bloated AF. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there is there is so much. Uh, this is... I know we joke about, like, books that required you to have, like, a wiki open. This book, I like, should just say that. This it book really should, should... There's a lot of characters I don't know anything about, and a, f- a few characters that, like, I hadn't kept up on for a while. Oh, gosh. Yeah, Penance so, is in there. Yeah, so yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know who Penance was. I didn't know who Husk was. Um... And Husk, I guess, has been around for a while too. Wait, Husk, is this uh, Paige Guthrie? I, I no, I don't think so. No, she's. I don't Are know. There two Husks. I don't, Stephen. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> Gosh, I mean, there probably is. Um, Paige Guthrie, like Sam Guthrie, like Cannonball, right? There's a whole family. Yeah. 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 Paige Guthrie was a member of Generation. Uh, <laughs> Paige Guthrie was a member of Generation X. As was uh, Penance or uh, whatever the... Gosh, Penance is so complicated. M, is that her name? Goodness. This, uh, uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> words, Come on. No, she was the one who was like... She was on the, the space station with Cyclops and Wolverine and them. And all of a sudden she turns into like a red clawed rage monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like orig- her history... like. She was originally like two sisters, and one of them was the the human looking one, and the other one was the the monster looking one. But they like stole her powers. She's complicated, was my point. And she's a minor character that nobody actually cares about. I shouldn't say that. Every time I say nobody actually cares about them, like I immediately thereafter discover that no, they actually have a very rabid fan base. Because hmm. the last time I think I made that comment was about Black Panther, which that comment did not age well. <laughs> Two billion with a B dollars later. Anyways, yes, it is Paige Guthrie who is Husk, and she's in here. I didn't real. Where was she in this book? She was part of the group. She was part of the group that went to the space station that died. Oh, that's why I don't remember hers because she died before she made it onto the station. Probably, I think that was Uh, her. I don't think think she was one of the ones that died. I don't know. No, I think she was. It was her and Archangel. I'm looking at the the new the new books that are coming out. Is there's Dawn of X X Men one. Marauders one, Excalibur one, X Force one, New Mutants one, Fallen Angels one. Yes, we get it. There's a lot of X Men books. <laughs> <laughs> That's never happened before. Uh, but yeah, it was actually kind of nice to find out that Gold Balls, uh, his new mutant name is Eggs. That's <laughs> not better. So so no, worse. but also his power isn't that they're Gold Balls or Gold Eggs that are yeah. unviable. Yeah, they should have called them Golden Goose. <laughs> yeah. I felt bad because I felt really worried because I was like, okay, his power is like other people could do it. Like they could like make these things. So like, who's going to die of these five? Like, Ooh, you know, or is that going to be the new conflict? Like, Oh yeah, you can have resurrection, but we kidnapped, you know, gold balls. We've got your gold (laughs) balls in a vice. (laughs) Uh, What what did I say? (laughs) Villains have death traps. What do you, Oh, 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 but uh, part of what I was saying though is like so Gold Balls is one of those characters I had not kept up on uh, for a while, so that was like a neat revelation. Granted, I don't know if that was a revelation that happened in this book or it had been previously established, but smells like a retcon to me. Yeah, uh, but also Ava, Ava Bell or Tempest is I probably like her powers. She's one of the more interesting characters to come out of uh, like the Schism event. Yeah. Yeah, and she has a real interesting story. Uh, Stephen, do you know any? Do you know Ava Bell? No, um, 
by I've got a pretty big X-Men blind spot that starts pretty much right after Grant Morrison X-Men. Okay. So so she was one of the new mutants to come out after after the schism event. Uh, her power is that she can create like little time bubbles and con- and control the time the flow of time and those things. And in a training session, she makes a bubble around herself and disappears for like a f- couple minutes. And when she comes back, she is noticeably older and traumatized. <laughs> and it's revealed that she accidentally sent herself to a 2099 future, was stuck there, fell in love, had a family, uh, had to go back to the past to escape something. And when she went back to the future, it was a new alternate future. And Tony Stark, as the Sorcerer Supreme of that future, helped her get back to the present. And she lost her family and seven years of her life from the future. Oh, gosh. Right? It's probably Stark's fault, too. This is the Bendis Uncanny X-Men, when she's recruited by the revolutionary Cyclops. Great art by Chris Piccolo. Yeah. uh, You know, my favorite Cyclops is still, like... Che Guevara Cyclops. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> oh, that reminds me. I don't think we've actually covered, other than Jonathan Hickman, uh, we haven't talked about the Artists? other... Artists? Yeah, the other creatives involved. Yeah, Pepe so got, I've never heard of him before. He's mm-hmm. great. He is excellent. He's fantastic. Ah, ah, excellent. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was funny. And we've also got... Uh, Silva. Cowles on letters and Marte Garcia on colors. Great uh, work. Granted, yeah. we're talking we're talking about uh, House of X because Powers of X also has a a different art art team for oh, it. Right, R B Silva. Sorry, you're right. R B Silva and uh, Mart- Marte Garcia. Adriano de Benedetto. Co- yeah, colors still Marte the same. Marte so colors. That, yeah. Yeah. It, it feels continuity like continuity there. That's it. Kind of does feel like it's the same artist because that color really binds the two books together, so and the vibrant. letters are the same between the books as well. Uh, Clayton Cowles, yeah, like both of these art teams, though uh, Pepe Larraz, Arby Silva, uh, Adriano Di Benedetto, and Marte Garcia, like working together. Holy cow! Yeah, it's it's like exactly the right balance of like cartoony action. Uh, stylization that I like so much and grounded realism like that that helps the the sci-fi elements to hit harder uh solid books yeah I I think legitimately my only complaint with the art was uh Charles Xavier looking a little weird when they go to meet uh Sinister that was he like his face was a little weird in that but uh, legitimate, like that's my only artistic complaint with the book. Yeah, um, I have narrative complaints about the book, other than the unfortunate implications we talked about earlier. Uh, y'all know the movie Memento. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I haven't. But for sake of it, conversation, I haven't seen it. But for the sake of conversation, let's pretend I have. All those playing the John talks about anime game. Go on. so memento the the movie uh who's it guy pierce yeah sure guy pierce plays uh, a man who is investigating the murder of his wife 
Uh, he's suffered brain damage uh, in a re- in, as a result of the attack, so he cannot form any new short-term memories. Uh-huh. And so every time he discovers a new clue for his wife's murder, he tattoos it on his body. And so the very first thing he does when he wakes up every day and, and doesn't have any memories is he looks at all the tattoos on his body and uses that to piece together uh, the, like the, the murder. Yes. The thing about it is um, the movie itself is told non-linearly. Like, you start in the middle of the story, and then you flash back, and you flash forward, and you flash back, and you flash forward, and you don't understand why, like, what is actually going on. You're confused. Roger Ebert wrote a review of the movie, and he talked about this, this non-linear storytelling he talks about how, like, Nolan's... De- I'm actually quoting from RogerEbert.com now. Nolan's device of telling his story backward, or sort of backward, is simply that, a device. It does not reflect the way Leonard thinks. He still operates in chronological time, and he does not know he is in a time-reversed movie. The film's deep, backward, and abysm of time is for our entertainment and has nothing to do with his condition. It may actually make the movie too clever for its own good. I've seen it twice. The first time, I thought I'd need a second viewing to understand everything. The second time... I found that greater understanding helped on the plot level, but didn't enrich the viewing experience. Once is right for this movie. Confusion is the state we are intended to be in. Okay. I've always actually taken that as a criticism of Memento. Because the nonlinear storytelling in Memento doesn't really serve any higher purpose. And I kind of feel like the same thing here with House and Powers of X. Reading according to the recommended reading order, you just wind up hopping all over the place in time, and I'm not sure that actually adds to the experience at all. In Memento or in this? (laughs) In both. (laughs) I, you know, seeing as my only experience so far has been with the recommended reading, I don't know how much it differs. And I, I am curious to find out because the order here is flexible, at least in the way the book recommends it. Because we go from like house one, powers one, house two, powers two, like powers three, then like house three and four, and then like four, five, and then we six and five, six again or, so, or something like that. It's, yeah. it's a weird order, and I don't know how much of it was necessarily needed narratively or maybe it was like a bye week for the artist <laughs> like you get a little bit more time to draw this one yeah but but and but on a narrative sense though i don't know and, and right now it's because my experience of the book is so intertwined in that order that i read it that mentally i have a i can't separate what events go to what book yeah. and, and I, I am curious to maybe in a week or so because uh, right now it's too fresh to to reread these books, but separately. Because yeah. I am I am curious if if it does add anything or if it even or the mixed uh, reading order actually takes away from it. So, like to me, a little bit like these these books do kind of stand on their own. I, I I kind of alluded to this when I was doing my summary. House of X seems to be mostly about the formation of the mutant government. Powers of X is mostly about Moira and her different life lifetimes and the the transhuman future where men with their machines have completely eradicated mutant kind. But that's not a perfect 
analog or that's not a perfect lineup because House of X number two, House of X, which is supposed to be the book all about, you know, the foundation of the mutant nation is about the many lives of Moira Taggart. And that's where we get the scene where Moira is trying to eliminate mutant kind, but she has that confrontation with destiny who warns her that depending on her course of action, she may only live 10 times. She might get an 11th if she does the right thing. Uh, like that very threatening, actually really great conversation, probably one of the highlights of the book, of both books. Right. But that's, that's in the book that's all about, you know, the formation of the mutant nation. And Powers of X similarly has uh, bits where we see, like, Professor X getting Cyclops uh, up to speed so that he can lead the mutant strike force to take out the mother mold and we get probably one of the better cyclops moments in that i can recall where he's like does it need doing well then yeah. we'll do it yeah. that was a great little moment yeah i loved that i think that was an issue two it's it's a big jump for his character like i'm accepting that this is maybe not good but it needs doing and your uh, charles xavier is asking me to do it so therefore mm -hmm. yeah big moment so yeah like it feels like the two books are purposely, like, muddied together, and I'm not sure to what effect, Yeah, honestly. And, and here's the thing, too, is if, if it's so integral for them to be intertwined, why not make them into a book instead of two? That's ultimately my, my nitpick. Like, this right. published as two different series. This should have been one 12-issue series. Yeah. Or 13 or 14, like, as the case may be, if you needed the extra space to... Because, you know, those issues one and two were really, really long. Or issues... The issue ones were really long. The two issue ones? <laughs> the two issue ones. Yeah. Yeah. I... Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, I, I am interested to, to kind of revisit these, uh, just to kind of... For that experience, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, I'll tell you this. Like, despite my nitpick here, like... Mm -hmm. Since I subscribed to Marvel Unlimited, my drive to actually purchase physical Marvel comics has gone way down. Mm -hmm. I want to buy this book. Uh, same. I yeah, I really I enjoyed this. Yeah. Yeah. And like, kind of like, not to keep bringing up Morrison, but one of my favorite aspects of reading Morrison's <laughs> writing is that it is intellectually very challenging. Uh, the act of reading Grant Morrison books, not every Grant Morrison book, but a lot of them is difficult and it makes me feel smarter for doing it. I feel like House and Powers of X taxes my brain in a similar way. And Hickman does that. Like I've read a couple of Hickman books, not just this and not just Secret Wars. I remember reading Nightly News a uh, long that was my introduction to Hickman uh, about 10 years ago, I think. Nightly News is uh, although I don't think your your uh assessment of of Jonathan Hickman is not a political writer would hold up after reading Nightly News. Um, okay, it's not like okay. I didn't mean political. I just mean like <laughs> socially political. I don't know. Yeah, I don't that, know. And this is not a political book, regardless. I, I like. I don't think you can. I don't think it holds up as a political book no. if you if you try to read it as one. But anyway, the point is, Hickman is a smart writer, and he makes you a smarter reader, or he rewards smart reading, which it basically has the same effect. Uh huh. I'm on the Marvel Unlimited app, and one of the new books that they're they're featuring is called Future Fight First's Luna Snow, and the description is the K-pop crime fighter from the Marvel Future Fight mobile game stars in her own one-shot, and now I kind of want to read that. Oh, no, I know, me too. Because it's probably bad. Yeah, probably. 
I don't know. It, it could be. It could be. Anyway. I thought it was a little... Uh, t- Man, their resurrection ceremony is not... It's not for people who are not, you know, real comfortable with their bodies. Oh, gosh. You imagine you're resurrected. You've literally just had your whole life re-injected into your brain. And the first thing they do is, like, not only are you doubted of who you are, but you also have to present yourself stark butt naked to the whole populace. Yeah. Was anybody else weirded out by Storm in that bit? A little bit. A little bit? Yeah, like... That didn't yeah. seem very stormy. Yeah, there was something about that that felt out of character for Storm. Because it was very much like she was acting almost like like a, like a, like like a priest. A, oh, I was going to say cult leader. Like a cult leader. Like, honestly, she yeah. She reminded me of the, uh, <laughs> of the gang leader from The Warriors. <laughs> Can you dig it? A <laughs> little bit, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because it was very, like, ceremonial, very sort of like... And I don't know if this was meant to be some sort of allusion to, you know, that time that Storm was worshipped as a goddess in Africa, because that's part of her backstory. She's probably used yeah. to the spotlight then. Yeah, but... It's a good public speaker. That doesn't mean that my dingus needs to be on display for all of <laughs> yeah. teammates and all of yeah. you time. Like, like, I can totally buy uh, Wolverine and Cyclops being okay with that and, you know, just landing out loud and proud, but... uh. I feel like the one Catholic person in the room probably wasn't that cool with it. Oh yeah, Nightcrawler. Yeah, that's what. Yeah. That's why he's crouching. <laughs> it's not because <laughs> of his bone structure or anything like that. He's just modest. He knows if he stays in shadows, he's almost invisible. That's a, that's a character trait that is a oh true canon true. canonically accurate. That way, he always gets to be drawn with cool shadows. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say. I, I also, I think him and Wolverine have like one of the coolest bro moments in the in the books uh, when they're de- getting when they're destroying the Master Mold, and they're like, "Well, are we gonna do this?" And he's like, "Yep." And he's like, "I'll see you in hell." And he's like, "Well, if you ever stop being immortal, I'll see you in hell." <laughs> <laughs> and then they teleport near the sun and destroy the Master Mold. Doing. I, I feel like I have a bit of a blind spot with X Men. I blame the 92 series, which maybe it doesn't hold up, but I still want to go back and watch all of it again. <laughs> like, if you grew up with it, it holds up. It's yeah. not good, but the nostalgia buttons will still be pressed and you'll be fine. Yeah. I just was always fascinated by their powers and I and and how unique. Like, it was a whole team and they had really cool powers and, you know, different even from, you know, Avengers and stuff. I don't know what it is because it's a team of super-powered individuals, but them being mutants somehow made it different and more special and i just you know i always liked them and so good bad like i'm still gonna read it and some maybe i'll like more than others um this gets me excited because i feel almost like this is gonna start off something like superior spider-man where you're like well clearly peter parker is not going to live in a small corner of his brain forever you know i know that it's not going to be forever like this but it's interesting for the time being, and it's really well done. So we'll see where this goes, and I'm I'm in whatever happens. So, yeah, I, I so here here's the thing. I was messaging for the audience who doesn't know. I was messaging Stephen and uh, John about. There you go. Thanks. <laughs> 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 At least I'm not on a date with you. Boy, do I have stories about that. Who? Oh, <laughs> you said my name on dates before? No. <laughs> I've just forgotten my dates' names on dates. (laughs) 
Oh, I've done that. Actually. Wait, did I? How did I? Did I say that correctly? My dates, names on dates. Yes. Yep. Yeah, okay. you said. Yeah, I'm catching up. Okay. English is dumb. Go on. Yeah. Uh, what was I saying? Yeah. So I was messaging them about, you know, me deciding I'm gonna enter my my X Men phase. I don't think I'm gonna. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> X Men is big and it's complicated. And if I was gonna do that phase, okay. Last year I said I was gonna read. All of Jason Aaron's Thor. I read three issues before I gave up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna do the same. I've and I've been telling myself for years that I was gonna like catch up on on the on the post schism because I was I entered X Men during Avengers versus X Men. I read Schism. I read like the first uh, like forty issues of both. Uncanny X-Men and whatever the other one was. I think Wolverine and the X-Men. Yeah, where he's uh, the headmaster of the school. Yeah, so like those two those two books, when they I liked it, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I read that much into it, and I dropped out of it because there's just, there's a lot. Mm-hmm. There is so much. And I might read, I might keep reading after this, but I don't think I'm going to go back. I don't think there's really any point. Yeah. My experience with X-Men, because I like... John, and probably a lot of people, came to X-Men because of the 92 X-Men cartoon. Uh-huh. Like, and anything that differs from that dramatically kind of rubs me the wrong way, even though, like, 90s X-Men is not actually my bag at all. Like, in the comics, I'm not a fan. Even with um, the trading cards, Steven? Even with the trading cards. Oh, wow. I thought uh, that would Like, if sold. I didn't... Except for the stuff that I read when I was a kid. So... Yeah, still like Fatal Attractions, but gross. <laughs> anything I didn't anything I didn't read when I was a kid, I don't like. Um, but you know, with the X Men, sort of the broader thing, what I've found is find an event, find a story that appeals to you, and just jump in and embrace the weirdness because it's never going to make sense. You're never going to get all of it. Unless you are a devout listener of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, which I dropped off after they hit the late 80s. Yeah, I didn't even start. I said I was gonna. (laughs) And then I didn't. I keep up with Spider-Man, and that's enough. And that's a big job. Yeah. (laughs) I have six books, six Marvel books, and all six of those are Spider-Man books. (laughs) I still have, I'm like, 20 issues behind in Runaways, I think. I'm way behind. And like I get those physical copies. Um even even during quarantine they they passed them through the car window, but <laughs> Yeah. I think actually I think all my Marvel books are Spider-Man books. Mary Jane, Spider-Man, Black Cat. Yeah. Oh boy, I need better hobbies. Are you the opposite of most people where most people are like I I like Marvel and Batman? Like, do you do a lot of DC and Spider-Man? Like, is- no, my my DC book is uh, Batman Beyond. Mm, I do like, Batman. and that is, I think that's it. Oh, also all the White Knight last night on Earth stuff with Batman, but all that stuff is like wrapped up right now. So Beyond yeah. is my only book. So that's basically, although you just like Spider-Man because Batman Beyond is what if Batman was also Spider-Man? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Or alternatively, what if Spider-Man was Batman? There you yes. Go. Except for the whole nobody dies when I'm around bit. Does Bat Does Batman Beyond kill people? <gasps> not in, like not intentionally, but he doesn't real feel real bad when like a villain falls a thousand floors out of a space building. 
Should should we rank these? <sighs> should we rank these or this? Yeah, okay. I think we have to rank <laughs> this as one thing. Yeah, right? absolutely. Especially if that's how we read it. Yeah, like House of X, Powers of X is one book. It's intended to be one book. It's marketed as being two books that are one. If you buy the hardcover, it's both books. Or yeah. I think even the trade. I think the trades are a book together. Yeah. So this is one book. Uh, where does it go? Currently, our list has 94 titles on it, ending with The Evil That Men Do, and like starting with No Normal, uh, Ms. Marvel. This book goes probably pretty high, but not like... I don't know. I don't, I don't want to put it like at the very tippy top. As much as I liked it, I don't think it goes quite that high. You don't think it's quite Secret Wars good? No, I like Secret Wars tons better than this. Yes. I'm looking at our list and I'm I'm comparing like okay, like important stories, you know, really exceptional stories. That's kind of our top is like, well this is this is like a cornerstone of the Marvel universe, you know. This is a game changer and I don't know how many of those we've had really. X-Men have a ton of game changers though. Like that's the <laughs> one thing that makes Hey, hey, Aldo, remember that time that I said a thing and then Steven dunked on it? And, uh, and then that I'm never happened. saw Messiah Complex at number 15 right now, and I'm like, oh, yeah, there's, you know. <laughs> that isn't so much a game changer as much as Second Coming was, and we'll get to right. that. Right. Yeah, but, like, Dark Phoenix Sagas just before, or just below Messiah Complex, that was a game changer. Not in this, uh, not in the same, like... A major character died. At a time when that wasn't super common in superhero comics. But, like, that didn't change the status quo of the X-Men like this does. Is my my thinking. Like, that it's a big, like... I mean, it introduced Kitty Pryde. Cyclops left the team. You know, Jean Grey died. And it's the... Like, that's the dragon that the X-Men have been chasing ever since. Mutants are still protecting a world that hates and fears them. Before and after, whatever role they're in, wherever they That's split fair. off, you know. Um, so if I may interject, I would just like to throw a number out there and just say 11. Okay, so between Spider Island and Last Hand. Yes. I don't have a problem with that. I was thinking you guys would want it to be lower. I personally would put a little lowered, but that's just a personal preference of I like Messiah Complex more. I love the scope of this and as somebody whose x-men experience is limited to the books on this list and uh some heavy midnight wikipedia reading um, <laughs> which i don't think is abnormal in this day and age but that's just it what i tell be. myself There's so much crap especially with the x-men and all the retconning and all the time travel and because that's a big thing is like they're always fighting the future yeah and um so yeah yeah so i I, I like what this book does. Maybe I'm biased because it's Jonathan Hickman, but I like the writing. I like the double duty the writing is is doing. Are there some like narrative faults for it trying to be two books when it really could have been one that was better integrated? I think so. But I don't think that experience is egregious enough to like heavily discount points. I think for I think the biggest problem with it though is that like almost any other celebration book there's a lot of things in here that it requires you to like it expects you to know right like it kind of expects you yeah. it doesn't explain who or why husk and penance are or or gene gray is back 
it doesn't really tell you a whole lot about who the five are. Oh yeah, like nothing. Yeah, it, like like uh, Magneto explains like what their powers are and how they work together, and like that's real neat, but nothing about them as people. Yep. So yeah, I mean, it has some faults, which is why I don't think it necessarily cracks the top ten. But I think if it was just a little, a little bit better in explaining that stuff, which granted to the overall story is not important, I think it could break the top ten. But as it is, I don't think it's necessarily top ten, but it's really dang close. Yeah, I think the type of story that it is, we don't get the same kind of character moments like we get in some of our top ten stories. But the scope of it, um, yeah, I think absolutely I agree with I think you've talked me down because like I, <laughs> I, I initially said I didn't want to put it at the very tippy top. And then as I started looking at the list, it's like, is this a book that I like more than Secret Wars? No. Do I like it more than Parable? No. Is it close? Kind of, and I think I think part of the problem here too is like like recency bias. Like I haven't, yeah, I I haven't I haven't spent enough time with this book in my life to think about how much I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still in the honeymoon phase of this book. Yeah. Also, like what we like about it is how it sets up this new status quo. Does that status quo stick around? Uh, I mean, like we don't we'll find out. In it's a year, too soon right? to tell. It is yeah. literally too soon to tell. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Beta um, Ray Bill sets a new, a pretty good status quo about Beta Ray Bill, but you know, he's sticking doesn't come back very often. So, that and that's, a, and that's number 21. Beta Ray Bill's old enough to drink. <laughs> <laughs> if, if every line were a year. Okay. <laughs> That sounded like a drug reference. <laughs> wow. So this is number 11 then, right? Uh, I would say so. Okay. Number 11, in between Spider Island and Last Hand. Jeez, I, I actually really want to put it higher still, but I, I think this is right. I think this is right. I don't <laughs> want to... Uh. Honeymoon. Remember, honeymoon. Honeymoon, honeymoon. And this is probably the newest comic we've read, like from oh, yeah. publishing it, to it, when it hit the app. Yeah, it hit the app, like, the week we recommended it. So this this has been on the app for two weeks now. The books we're going to read for our next episode. We're taking a bit of a step back from the epic scope of things. Um, and the quality. Not, actually, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> but the quality. <laughs> so the first book we're going to read is... The start of the Jason Aaron run of Thor. Although we're going to help you towards your goal. Two more issues than I originally had. <laughs> yep. So we're reading from 2012, Thor, God of Thunder, issues one through five. And uh, speaking of five, we are also going to read a, an odd little mini series from 2011 or 2010 called Five Ronin. It's an alternate history retelling of Marvel Universe sets some of its more popular characters in samurai times. Although you and I have actually both read that one before. Yeah, I let you borrow the trade way back in the day. And I read it. Yeah. And so now we're going to read it officially and rank it. And John, you can come along as well. Hooray! And John, have you read the Jason Aaron Thor stuff? My brother-in-law has been like preaching it to me like it's gospel since he started reading it and he wanted to read I, I it was it was before War of the Realms. I think he like read some of Thor and then stopped 
found out, oh, this is Jason Aaron. I'm going to read everything the man has written and went all the way back and has like told me about, okay, there's this great Thor stuff going on, but you really got to go back and you got to read it and you really got to go back. So this is me pawning off my um, family responsibilities of catching up on Thor onto our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to do it. Man. I just, I figure it's, that's it's why good for read the soul. Exiles that one time. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Well, and at the bare minimum, we've uh, we've cemented a new listener. <laughs> at least for the one episode. Right? At least for the one episode. Yep. Yeah. All right, and I think with that, we got to wrap up. I mean, we've been recording for a while. One story, technically two books, but one story, and it took us this long. But what a story, Stephen! What a story indeed! Oh, what a night! Late December, back in '63. What a very special time for me. What a lady, what a night. That I song. Request for our next. Episode, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> ditch the Thor and I'll do this karaoke. All right, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening to the last episode of the Superhuman Registration Podcast. <laughs> Join us next week when we rebrand to uh, Aldo Karaoke. Super happy fun time. Yay. Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> The Super Aldo Karaoke Podcast. Oh, yes. Don't forget, happy fun time. <laughs> well, I'm, I, I'm fitting the cadence of our, our oh, no. podcast title. That's fair. That's fair. He's trying to pull some kind of iambic pentameter BS English major <laughs> stuff. Aldo, don't let him. You call it whatever wacky <laughs> Japanese import game show you want to do, and, and I'll watch it. I'll hit subscribe so fast. <laughs> So I reincarnated as a karaoke machine, and now I have to date a lot. <laughs> <laughs>